Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. We watched Dash and Lily on Netflix this past week. I know it's a little bit behind because it is a Christmas story, but we were still feeling in the Christmas spirit, so why not? It's a neat little series of half-hour episodes, and there were some really cool moments in there. Um, it's about two young people who communicate with each other through a red notebook, which Lily left next to J.D. Salinger's book, Franny and Zoe, in the bookstore in hopes that somebody interesting would find it. It's a cool concept. And there were some really neat moments in, in the series. And one that stands out is where Lily confronts her middle school bully. And she talks about how hard it was for her as a kid when he did the things he did. And he says something that's kind of kind of a shock to her system, like an epiphany. So a um, bit of a spoiler here. You can skip the next few seconds. Uh, she says, I was only 12. And he says, so was I. And I loved that moment because one of the most important things my mom taught me was that very thing. Anytime I talked to her about, you know, something someone else said or did that upset me, she used to remind me that everyone is going through something. Everyone has something they're dealing with. And she wasn't saying it to dismiss my feelings or anything, but just reminding me, just as I have stuff I'm dealing with, so does that person who said that thing. And that was always a huge help in mm, learning to not take things quite so personally, maybe. Feeling empathy for that person. A concept that was built on later when I worked with this theater director who said, anything another person says or does tells you something about them. You know, not you, them. And she said, how you react to it tells you something about you. Those words have stuck with me. And I taught my kids that too. Anything another person says or does tells you something about them. How you react to it tells you something about you. That concept coupled with everybody has stuff in their life that they're dealing with. Well, I wouldn't really call it my philosophy of life, but it certainly has helped me with trying to understand people. And I've said before about just trying to always keep in mind that someone else has a story. They have something that they're dealing with in their life. So that person who, you know, whose kid is freaking out in the grocery store or something like that, they've probably got something that they're dealing with and they certainly don't need me judging them or dumping on them. Call it a thought for the day. So last week, our friends were ill, and Kier was left to help them through it. Um, and we also got a little bit of pushback from Misty and Juggler, so that's interesting. Coming up next, our heroes will reach the next destination on their journey, 
we'll see what happens. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 14 Dangerous Times Another full day passed before the invalids were well enough for travel, and even then they had to take it slowly. An all-encompassing weariness had set in as their bodies recovered. They loped through a marshy area and saw moose tracks, though none of those shy creatures themselves. Janik eyed some ducks paddling on the marsh. Those critters are making me hungry. I'm famished, Derry agreed. Birds of a multitude of varieties swooped and twittered their displeasure at being disturbed by the travellers, but Skimnoddle gave them what for, and since they all felt hungry again, proved his point by cooking up a feast of duck. The birds were greasy but smelled heavenly, and felt surprisingly good in their hitherto dissatisfied stomachs. When they descended the westward slope of the Black Mountains, they found themselves in the relative shelter of a forest that brushed the southern edge of the Sea of Kun. There still had been no sign of Frederick and his party, though Kier figured there had to be more than one route through the mountains. And the illness of her friends had delayed them by three days. Frederick and company could be as near or far away as they wished to be. Throughout the journey, they all kept their eyes open for a tiny white flower in the shape of a trefoil. Kami's instructions said it could be found in this area near the Sea of Kun, but they had seen nothing, not even when Kier, Derry, and Jeskelin had taken short excursions off the trail. They were losing hope. "'Your friend is leading us on quite a chase,' Derry said with quiet sarcasm. "'My friend is helping us save Alon Mare's life,' Kier snapped. "'Uh-huh.' Derry didn't have to roll his eyes for Kier to know what he thought." Come on, Kami, where is it? Perhaps if Kier said it often enough, the wizard would hear her across the distance and help them. It was getting harder to defend him. More than a week after Kier's run-in with Frederick, in the early afternoon, the company trickled out of the forest of pine, spruce, and fir trees to find themselves overlooking the southern outskirts of a town. The low buildings and houses with slanting roofs had popped up like mushrooms on a promontory jutting on an angle into the southwest corner of the Sea of Kun. The town perched on a plateau framed on three sides by the water, and the slope plunged into the sea. Whitecaps topped the waves like frosting on little cakes. Kier approved of the town's position well above the potentially hazardous waters. She pulled her hood up against the wind that raked its fingers through her hair. Shading her eyes against the glare of the water, she peered westward across the narrow stretch of sea to the dark line on the horizon. It must be the rank mirrors if she remembered her geography correctly. To look past the town to the north rewarded her with a feeling of awe. This was as close as she had ever been to open water. In the near distance, the water was dotted with boats. Beyond, the sea stretched far to the north. Geography lessons had taught her that there were northern lands beyond the sea, but they were several days' sail away, entirely invisible to her naked eye from this corner. The vast emptiness made her feel lonely, and it was with relief that she looked across the eastern bay to the rocky shore. The green of the shore pines and firs was speckled with bright green, white, and red of a tree Kier had never seen before. It had bright green leaves, and its spiny branches gave it a wind-blown look. The red bark was peeling like bits of dry skin off the smooth, golden inner surface, and clusters of white, drooping flowers seemed to be the source of a honey fragrance on the sea breeze. "'Are those the flowers we're looking for, Kier?' Fennel asked. 
She frowned thoughtfully. I don't think so, but we can take a closer look. Like when we found the real Falander, I think I'll know when I see it. I don't know the name of this place. Anyone? Derry asked. I have been cogitating on the matter of our whereabouts for some days now, announced Skimnoddle from beneath his hood. I have, in my youth, spent some time in the northwestern quadrant of the guarded realm. In this moment, nothing would give me greater gratification, excepting, of course, one kiss from my beloved sweet lips, Kier held back a growl, than to procure a satisfying conclusion to your disquietude. Well, I would hardly call it disquietude, but in any event, Derry murmured. Out with it, Skimnoddle, I'm going grey over here, Janik said. Skimnoddle bowed with one hand on his breast. Your premature senescence would cause me ineffable sorrow, my good dwarf. Then righting himself again, he flourished with his arm. I give you the portal to the sea, the imaginatively labeled town of Seaview. The group was silent for a moment. Then Kier said to Janik, Do you think maybe we don't pay enough attention to him? Janik snorted. Seaview, Derry said thoughtfully, friendly to our cause. Skimnoddle apparently had purged himself of his desire to orate. So far as I know, Captain. Do you suppose someone there might know where we can find the elusive Talima? Derry asked. I'm sure there will be a herbalist who can help us, Kier answered dryly. Well, it'll be a relief to spend the evening among civilized folk once again, wouldn't you say? Fennel grinned, sitting up jauntily in his saddle. All right, Derry decided. We'll settle ourselves at an inn and then do some scouting to find an herbalist. Getting hold of the Talima is our first priority. Hopefully we can get some in time to enjoy ourselves this evening. And we should also try to learn what we can of the area south of here, put in Jeskelin, so we know how to find the Inden Caves. Derry nodded. Let's remember we want help from these people. Try to be polite. Was he purposefully avoiding Kier's eye? Yeah, polite like you were with Huron and Dene, she blurted. Derry shot a toxic look at her. She had cut him. She didn't care. The captain's behavior in the past couple of weeks had been disagreeable, to say the least. And now here he was, dragging up her behavior in Placatha again. She thought they'd left that far behind. It was in bad taste. And had the captain already forgotten how she'd spent three days nursing them all while they puked? Without even a thank you. Fine, I'll show him polite. How about downright friendly? The group descended the hill and entered the town by way of the heavily traveled road from the south. The breeze less strong here, Kier let her hood fall back. The air off the sea smelled fresh, yet carried hints of the pleasantly musty, earthy smell of coal smoke from the town's chimneys. Kier had heard others say the smell of coal made their nose hairs curl, but she loved it. It reminded her vaguely of Shale Castle and, more strongly, of home. She breathed it deeply and automatically liked Sea View. A youth intersected their path as he burst out of a shop. "'You there, lad,' Derry called. He halted his course and removed his cap with a little bow. "'At your service, sir.' "'Do we have the pleasure of entering the town of Seaview?' The boy confirmed this. He had a naive look about his face that made Kier judge him to be about sixteen or seventeen years of age. "'My friends and I are unfamiliar with this town,' Derry went on. "'Can you direct us to a reputable inn with both lodgings and decent fare?' 
Well, I'd hate to disappoint you, sir, but it'll be hard to find lodgings, what with the festival and all. Inns are all a bit crowded. You might try the trout, or the odds and suds. He pointed down the road to the left. Thank you for that. What festival is it that you speak of? Jeskelin asked. It's the annual fish fry. Folks come from all over to join in. There's cooking all over the town square and dancing and lots of places to sit and drink beer, too. You'd all be welcome. He bobbed his head again, making eye contact with each of them. And is there an herbalist in town? Yes, sir, Bodkins, just opposite the chandlery. Thank you, young man, Jeskelin said. Yes, sir, and if you need any errands run, just ask for Todd. People know me. The group trotted ahead. Todd waited for them to pass, and Kier observed the way he noted their armor and weaponry. He dashed off as soon as they'd gone by. Two figures watched the exchange between the teen and the newcomers to the town. They sat nonchalantly, inconspicuously, on the grass under a large aspen in front of a house on the second corner of the street. As soon as the lad disengaged from the company and headed in their direction, the woman nudged the man. Ask him. The man got to his feet. Be friendly, she advised as he pulled one of his swords part way out. He resheathed it and grinned at her. Save it, she nodded. The man stepped out of the trees just in time to startle the boy as he hurried by. Hello, sir, the boy said, his hand on his heart. I didn't see you there. You gave me quite a turn. Nice day, said the man. Yes, sir, perfect, returned the boy. Those folks you were talking to, the man began, cocking his head in the direction of Valraker's company as they turned down the other street. They after a place to stay. Yep, are you? Town's nearly full up. Already have a spot. Where'd you send them? The trout or the odds? Why, do you have room where you are? I could go after them, the boy offered. Nah, we'll find them there. Old friends. Oh, well, they were going to find the herbalist as well, so if you can't find them at the inn, you could try there. Appreciate your time. The man tossed the lad a silver coin. Thank you, sir. Good day to you, sir. And the lad was off again. The subdued cluck-cluck of the reed wind chimes alerted Bodkin that a customer had entered his shop. He tied string around a bunch of little flowers and hung them on a hook on the wall and turned to the lady, resting his palms on the counter. What can I do for you? Nothing for me. It's about what you can't do for someone else. Beg pardon, miss? A party of an odd assortment of folk will be here soon. She leaned her elbows on the counter. One hand held her chin, and the other traced invisible shapes on the shiny maple countertop. Six of them. One is a woman, with a knight, a dwarf, an elf, and a couple of others. The herbalist grimaced. That certainly is an interesting group. The bottom line, Mr. Bodkin, is that you do not have what they want. He looked confused. How do you know? What do they want? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. Her hushed tone made Bodkin shiver involuntarily. What matters is that whatever it is, you do not have it. She produced from thin air a gold coin. This is for you for saying so. And this, suddenly visible in her other hand, was a dagger with one keen edge and the other jagged with tiny asp-like teeth. This is what I have for you if you do not. Bodkin paled. 
His condition did not improve to observe the two bright swords hanging on either side of the woman's companion. He gulped. Which is it going to be? Ah, uh, he whispered and cleared his throat. Ah, <clears throat> uh, that should be no trouble at all, miss. I can certainly help you with that. He accepted the coin with a smile. Easy as herb tea, as I always say. Can't be too careful with all these strange sorts going about, don't you know? He babbled on until the two very unnerving people left his shop. Not a room was to be found at either of the inns the lad had recommended. I'll full up, sirs, said the angular fellow at the odds and suds. I dare say you'll find it the same everywhere. What about your common room? Derry asked hopefully. Well... He glanced over his shoulder and peered into the dim room beyond the desk. I've already got about eighteen folk in there. I could maybe squeeze a couple of yous in there, but I can't take all of you, and you'll have to pay in advance. In the end, they divided into pairs. Kier and Derry left their belongings at the odds and suds. They went as a pair out of habit, all the while putting on an excellent show for the others of being amicable. The other four tossed between the trout and the happy beer barrel. That was exhausting, Kier said, when they had finally all taken possession of mats on the floor of the three different inns and the horses were stabled. I'm ready to eat. Her gaze stuck to the tray of meals drifting by on their way to a table, but Fennel dragged her away. We have to find the herbalist first, he reminded her. We can come back after and have a snack, right, Derry? The captain nodded. But we don't want to fill up. There's a fish fry tonight. She groaned, but allowed herself to be pulled outside by the elbow. The streets were a bustle of folk setting up for the festival, positioning themselves for a good view and arriving from out of town to partake in the merriment. Bushel baskets of potatoes next to women with tubs of water and scrub brushes, scrubbing potatoes and tossing them into another bushel basket on the other side. More women chipping the clean potatoes and dumping them into tubs of water so they wouldn't turn brown. Men suspending iron pots from chains above fire pits. Still more men erecting grills large enough to cook many pieces of meat at once. Children dashing about, setting up chairs, chasing each other among them and knocking them down, being yelled at by adults. Humans, dwarves, halflings, on foot, on horseback, or ponies, in wagons and buggies, ponies and donkeys pulling carloads of fish up the hill from what Kier guessed was the pier, this being the portal to the sea. The folk walking alongside the fish carts were clad in bright colors made even cheerier by the early summer sun. They wore the wind-blown hair of a recent boat trip and cheeks rosy as if they'd been rubbed with rough wool. Cries erupted as townsfolk of Seaview greeted their friends from the ships. Musicians, succumbing to the festive excitement, had already struck up spontaneous performances on street corners. The air of mirth and camaraderie was contagious, and Kier struggled to stay focused on their task. Once we have the Talima, we can reward ourselves, she told herself. They asked for directions only once and soon found themselves at the door of Bodkin, the herbalist. The rattle of reed wind chimes announced their arrival as the six of them crowded into the small space. The dark and cool shop maintained the perfect condition for herb storage and preservation. Mingling aromas hung motionless in the air, a musty bouquet of pungent, sweet, spicy, and even fungal. These were woven with the soft aroma of beeswax and the tinge of alcohol. Kier was reminded all too vividly of medicine powders and herbal remedies of her childhood. You'd have to really like your job to work in a place like this, she thought with distaste. 
Row upon row of bundles of flowers hung from the ceiling and more along the wall. A floor-to-ceiling shelf behind the counter was jammed with glass vials and clay bottles of tinctures, ointments, creams, salves, syrups, vinegars, and oils. Some were labeled, some were not, and Kier mused that an herbalist would have to know his trade very well to keep them all straight. Shelves all around them held jars of dried herbs and barks for use in infusions, decoctions, aromatic waters, herbal baths, compresses, and poultices. Everything on the customer side of the counter was labeled neatly with all capital letters. Familiar names such as licorice, feverfew, passionflower, and chamomile whirled by Kier's glance, as well as more obscure products such as valerian, meadowsweet, baptisia, and comfrey. Kier pointed to a jar marked Astragalus and tugged Derry's elbow. Isn't that one of the things in the tea you make? He nodded as a short, scrawny man bloomed out from a back room. So sorry to keep you waiting. I was grinding. He stopped as he saw the group crammed into his shop and seemed to quail. Kier got the sense that he was counting them or sizing them up individually. Derry glanced round at them. I suppose there are a lot of us. Fennel, Janix, Gimnoddle. He nodded at them. The selected three went outside to wait so as not to intimidate the herbalist. Not necessary, but I appreciate your courtesy, he said a bit stiffly, Kier thought. I'm Tavi Bodkin. Are you in town for the festival? His fingers drummed the countertop lightly. By mere chance only, Derry said. The muscles in Bodkin's neck did not relax with Derry's smile. We are actually looking... My name is Derry Morant, by the way. My friends and I work for Lord Dunverin. Kier was stunned by Bodkin's reaction to this. Rather than appearing impressed, as most people would, the little herbalist's color drained, the eyes widened, shoulders and jaw sagged. It was an ever-so-brief reaction, and then he resumed his attitude of composure, but Kier had seen it. There's something going on here. What? <clears throat> Bodkin whispered, then cleared his throat. What is it you're looking for? Kier spoke up, stepping to the counter, behind which the man seemed to cower. We need a certain flower. Her fingers came together and drew the shape of it. A tiny white trefoil called Talima. Do you know of it? She observed his face and saw a brush of confusion mixed with something that resembled relief. She did not know what to make of it, but she stored the memory away for future discussion. He shook his head. I, I'm sorry, but I don't have any of that. Derry and Jeskelin looked at each other meaningfully. We can afford to pay you whatever it's worth, Derry said pointedly. You're wasting your time. I don't have any. Jeskelin took a step forward as if to confide in him. We are perfectly prepared to pay anything you ask. We are that much in need of it. The fellow appeared to hesitate, nervously fiddling with the button on his waistcoat. Oh, but you see, he said with determination that Kier thought might be just a tad forced, were you to pay me a thousand nobles, I still would have none to give you. You don't have such a useful plant as Talima, Jeskelin said doubtfully. In all my years of study, I have not heard that Talima had any unusual or, or useful properties. Do you know where we could find some? the mage said, masking his own desperation unsuccessfully. Anywhere. Fresh would suit. Derry here is a physiker adept. He knows about harvesting herbs. If you could just direct us to where we might find it. In a field, perhaps? No, I I'm sorry, but no, I can't. Even if I could, I, 
I don't think it blooms at this time of year. Is there anything else I can get for you? Primrose and cowslip make an excellent soporific, and honeysuckle, gallingale, and spikenard are an effective aphrodisiac, should you so desire. Thank you, no, Derry said quickly. The talima is all we came for. A good day to you, sir. You sure have a huge assortment here, Kier said suddenly. Derry and Jeskellen looked askance at her and at each other. She kept her eyes glued to Bodkin. Why, yes, miss, I find I'm able to help the townspeople with most of their ailments. We recently helped a group of villagers who'd been poisoned with amarin over a period of several months, she went on. Once we found the source of the poison, we stopped it, but had to let the poison just dissipate from their bodies. Would you have had any suggestions of antidotes or remedies? Oh, well, now, comfrey can be used to draw out poison. He looked up thoughtfully at the bunches of flowers on the ceiling, and Kier saw her chance to give a wink to Derry, as if to say, bear with me. Poppy, St. John's wort, to... He halted in his list and paled visibly. That is to say, uh, tongue of adder. Yes, interrupted Derry, pretending he hadn't caught the slip. I've used tongue of adder in my own salve. It's more of an ointment, really, he added modestly. Really, what does it consist of? Bodkin asked. And Derry went into a detailed explanation of his ingredients, while Kier sidled closer to the counter to peer idly over and look for what only she would recognize with Kami's help. Jeskellen kept an eye on her progress and popped his own question or two into the herbalist's conversation with Derry, buying her as much time as she needed. Her keen eyes rapidly scanned all the vials and bottles on the back shelf. Her efforts paid off. One corked vial three shelves up from the floor. Nothing on that shelf was labeled, but she identified it as immediately as she recognized the correct lichen in the damp caverns of the cold fells. Tiny blossoms, the petals separated. It was as if Kami were occupying her mind, seeing the bottle and identifying the herb through her eyes. A warmth glazed across her face as she seemed to feel the wizard's presence, but then Jeskellen's voice carried through. And it certainly has helped my friends suffer through their injuries. Kier snapped back to attention, hoping Bodkin hadn't noticed where she'd been looking. Yes, it certainly has. I might be getting addicted to the stuff. Well, thank you for your time, Derry said. It was my pleasure. I'm sorry I couldn't help you. Enjoy the festival. The bell jingled behind them, and the company casually walked back up the road. Any luck, then? Fennel asked, falling into step with Jeskellen. He doesn't have it, Jeskellen said. Doesn't have it, the elf exclaimed. But what do we do now? Thanks for picking up my signal, Derry, Kier said quietly. Of course, but what was that about? Are you kidding me? She stopped short next to a rack of textile samples at a weaver's shop. Didn't you see his face? No, said Derry. What? Jeskellen asked. She addressed them all, except Skimnoddle, who was lagging behind. He was terrified of something. I can't believe you didn't see it. He was lying about the Talima. And did you find it? Jeskellen asked. As a matter of fact, I did, she said. A glass vial of it. Skimnoddle finally caught up which he just poured into a blue clay bottle and put in his vest pocket, or I'm a hill giant. All eyes turned to the halfling. He shrugged. The keyhole is my friend. Damn, Kier said. There goes the idea of stealing it. Stealing, Derry said. I would not approve of stealing it. What would have been your suggestion, then? Sending Fennel in there disguised as a woman to buy some? Kier demanded. I don't know. 
Derry shook his head and started walking again. The main thing is, how are we going to get it now? Janet said. Derry's brow furrowed. I don't know that either. Let's talk about it over some food, Fennel suggested, and they headed back toward the happy beer barrel. Skimnoddle, however, excused himself. I have some things I'd like to do. He scuttled off in another direction. Bodkin locked up early, leaving by way of the back door. He hurried down the alley, right hand over his left breast pocket inside the cloak drawn round him. He darted glances this way and that, though he hadn't really thought about what he was looking for. Had it occurred to him that he might be followed, he might have gone in some neighboring building and snuck out another back door in an effort to lose his pursuer, but it didn't, and he didn't, and so the one following the skinny herbalist did so with no difficulty, for he was very good at following unnoticed. When the herbalist drew near to the square, he turned left by the basket weavers so as to avoid the crowds of the festival. He nearly fainted when a man caught up with him and grabbed him from behind, presenting a silver knife in between his eyes. "'Where are you off to, Mr. Bodkin, in such a hurry?' The skinny fellow stammered and stuttered, finally producing the word, "'Home!' "'And what's that you're hiding, Mr. Bodkin?' "'It's what they asked for, sir, Talima!' He pulled out the bottle and held it up so his captor could see. "'I don't want any trouble. I brought it with me to keep it safe!' The pitch of his voice rose with fear, as did his body temperature. Sweat beaded on his wrinkled brow. "'Are you sure you weren't going to give it to them?' The herbalist quaked. "'I never even thought of that! I swear it!' The bottle was snatched from his hand by a newcomer. She held it up and turned it round and round. "'I dare say he didn't think of it. Let him go.' The man's body went limp with relief as the clutching arm and the knife were drawn away. "'How about we take it off your mind?' she suggested in a smooth voice. "'If you don't have it, there's no chance of you being either tempted to give it to them "'or of any physical harm coming to your person. "'Pay the man for his goods, Juggles. It's his livelihood after all.' "'She was an assassin, but a reasonable one.' "'Juggler tossed the herbalist a silver noble, and they left him, "'the woman secreting the blue clay bottle away in a lambskin pouch at her left side.' The herbalist stood shivering in the road for several moments before going home. "'We are living in dangerous times,' he quavered to his wife. "'Dangerous times, indeed!' Only after he'd gone did the one who had been following him step out from behind the stack of baskets. Having viewed and heard the entire scene, Skimnoddle was satisfied that he knew not only who now had the bottle, but exactly what the bottle looked like. He leapt up and clicked his heels as he returned to the inn to meet his friends. When the halfling joined them at the table in the inn, he had fetched his pack from the common room where he and Fennel were to stay. He sat down and eagerly helped himself to some tidbits from the elf's and the mage's plates. They were too stunned and downhearted to be offended by his effrontery. Skimnoddle smacked his lips and licked his fingers before leaning down to produce his square of canvas and the soft bristled brush. He said nothing, and the others watched him curiously. He took Kier's clay mug, emptied it into his own throat, to her annoyance, and laid it down on its side on the table before him. Humming to himself, he looked around the room, saw what he was looking for, and skittered over to a table against the wall, speaking in uncharacteristic undertones to the patrons there who were digging into their plate of bread and cheese and a bottle of wine. 
When he returned, he placed a cork on the table next to the mug. He removed the cloth napkin from Derry's lap and laid it over top of the two objects. Skimnoddle's companions had stopped eating by now and watched the halfling's actions intently. "'Illusions,' he said, "'are everywhere.' He looked around the table and reached over for Fennel's cup of water and finally sat down. Spreading the canvas square on his lap, he dipped the brush in the water and began to paint. Even Kier, who was next to him, couldn't see what he was painting. He seemed to be taking a great deal of care with his artwork, pausing often to squeeze his eyes shut, playing with the end of the brush handle in his mouth. Finally, he put the brush down and laid the cloth on top of the napkin with the mug and the cork underneath. As he waved it from side to side, the water picture evaporated and Skimnoddle rolled up the canvas. He passed it to Kier, who took it without comment. Five pairs of eyes were locked on the napkin as he drew it aside. And five pairs of eyes looked bewildered as Skimnoddle revealed his creation, a clay bottle with a cork stopper. "'Yes!' he exclaimed in a subdued tone. "'What?' asked Fennel. The clouds cleared from Kier's face as it dawned on her. "'It's the bottle he poured the Talima into!' Skimnoddle rose to his full four-foot height and clapped his hand to his heart. "'Dear lady, you reaffirm my profound adoration for you. I maintain my partiality not without reason!' he bowed. "'Yeah, whatever, but what are you going to do with it?' she asked. "'You haven't created the Talima inside there, have you?' Fennel piped in excitedly. "'Sadly no, my dear elf,' Skimnoddle said. "'I suppose you would not be able to produce the precise properties of the plant,' Derry put in. Janik thumped the halfling on the back, nearly buckling him. "'You are a creature full of surprises, not discounting where you choose to aim your affections. What's your plan?' "'Ah,' Skimnoddle said, "'if my scheme is not self-evident, then I will ask you to rely upon me. Before this night is out and the sun's rays glint across the eastern skyline, I shall have attained that which we seek.' Having completed his oration, he gathered up his belongings and departed. It was obvious that Skimnoddle knew more about the whereabouts of the herb than the rest of them, so most of the others would resolve to leave him to it. Derry felt uneasy, but the others convinced him that it could do no harm to try to enjoy the evening. Skimnoddle would undoubtedly find a way of reaching them if he ran into trouble. "'I just want to sit, eat, drink beer, and watch the dancing all night,' Janik said with an enthusiastic growl. "'We'd better get going, or all the good spots will be taken,' Fennel said." They stepped out into the twilight and joined the river of townspeople headed for the square. They had only minimal trouble securing an excellent placement. Indeed, there didn't seem to be any such thing as poor placement. Tables and chairs had been brought out from every establishment surrounding the square, which was rectangular and placed around the perimeter, leaving plenty of room for dancing in the centre. Seaview's town square was a flat area in the hillside. During market time, vendors and their carts followed the road, which was a low-grade hill, but advantage had been taken of the higher levels. A series of wide terraced steps had been paved with cobbles on the higher edge of the square, one not quite a foot above the other. Each level had ample room for tables and chairs, and they all had a perfect view of the dancing area. They also provided an excellent view of the platform erected at the far side of the square upon which the band had already begun to play. On the second of these levels, Fennel scouted out a table with three chairs and darted ahead to snag it just before a halfling and her family. Fennel stuck his tongue out playfully at them, but then assisted them in securing a table by asking two couples if they might share. 
Now everyone's happy, Fennel exclaimed as the halfling laughingly joined her children at their table. Derry, in the meantime, had found two more chairs for himself and Jeskelin, though he twisted his head round looking for the mage. Where's Jeskelin? he asked. Nobody had seen him follow them. The elf sat next to Janik and Kier, just as Jeskelin strolled up, looking as if he'd seen someone he knew and didn't want to be recognized. Kier wondered what he'd been up to. The mage didn't try to join the others right away. He had to catch his breath first, not to mention organize his thoughts and steady his mind. He'd nearly jumped out of his skin when the waitress addressed him, but now that he'd read the note she gave him, his head was a jumble. Who would be giving him a message here in this ratty little town with its sorry excuse for a celebration? I have information of use to your party, the note read, though not for all ears. Meet me behind the Trout Inn at moonrise. He'd looked around the room for a possible sender. The other patrons all appeared very occupied by their drinking, laughing, and merrymaking, far too occupied to be sending notes. But he shook his head. Whoever had sent it would have made sure he was not around to be detected. There was nothing to do but wait until moonrise. Not so, he contradicted himself. I must think on things. Should he tell the others about this? Should he even attend the assignation? These questions could be pondered over a mug of beer. He hastened after his friends. I've worked here and there over the past week or so on a few sideline projects, so I've put them on my to-do list. One is that I want to work on a new short story, you know, a new piece to help inject some extra energy into the novel. I'm also making progress on the novel, but to set it aside briefly and plunge into something else is kind of like taking a vacation. Change is as good as a rest, they say. Uh, another thing I'm working on is some song lyrics. <laughs> so my jazz partner, Gord, the other half of the Itty Bitty Big Band, has been spending his COVID time doing some composing. And he wants me to have a try writing some lyrics for this one tune he created. Now, I really want to do this. But here's the thing. I have never written lyrics before. In fact, I have never written poetry I don't know what happened to the poetry writing segment in high school. I must have been sick that day. All I know is that this is an excellent struggle. Call it a challenge for me to get my brain out of thinking about things literally. I understand simile and metaphor. And certainly when it comes to other people's lyrics, I, I get that. Trying to train my brain to look at an idea and express it, you know, kind of from the side rather than head on is really tough for me. On the other hand, another neat moment that came up in Dash and Lily was when Lily's great aunt says to whoever it was, she says, argue for your limitations and sure enough, they're yours. Now, in the middle of the show, that struck me like a bus. So I paused the show to make a note of it. And afterward, I looked it up. And it's a quote from Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Now, I love this quote. Argue for your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. So long as I keep saying I 
can't do something, it will be true that I can't do that thing. So I'm going to stop arguing my limitations and turn I can't write poetry or I can't write song lyrics into I can write song lyrics. I have a feeling working on poetry is going to be very good for my writing in general. And hey, if I stop arguing my limitations in other areas of life, that's also going to be good, right? Who's with me? One more little thing. Um, I've talked before about how important reviews are to authors. And if you're listening to this podcast regularly, thank you. You have listened to Gatekeeper's Key, which is, of course, available as an audiobook. If you would take a moment to give it a review, I would be so grateful. You can review it without purchasing it through these retailers. Apple, Google, Kobo, Downpour, and Scribed with their, I guess they have a free trial. So if you sign up for their free trial, then you can review a book through Scribed. Uh, in addition to review sites like Goodreads. Um, thank you, thank you so much for helping increase the book's visibility online. I would be very, very grateful. This just in, Pulp Literature Magazine has a podcast right here on Podbean. It's pulpliterature.podbean.com. And uh, each episode, they they have um, discussions between the editors about writing and editing and slush pile reading and things like that. And they have feature interviews with writers and readings. And each episode, they're having a, a questionnaire where an author uh, answers a, a select series of questions. So I was invited to participate in responding to the questionnaire. And I am told that the episode in which my questionnaire is featured is up today. So check out pulpliterature.podbean.com and hear my insightful responses to their questions. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie, who have never argued my limitations. Thanks to David and Sharon, because everybody's dealing with stuff. Thanks, Original Six, and thanks very much to you, dear listener. Now, go be fantastic.